with another episode of As Crime Goes By. This is your hosts, Amy and Katie. And we are here with Hometown Murders. So the theme behind this one is, if you hadn't got it, we're doing themes. So the theme behind this one <laughs> if you've not is... you've yeah. <laughs> I'm from Newcastle, so my Hometown Murder will be set in Newcastle and... I'm from Manchester, so mine is set in Manchester. There we go. But we're going to start off with mine because it's better. <laughs> uh, all right. I know. I'm, I'm not biased at all. <laughs> um, so for those of you who don't know, there was uh, quite a famous murder back in the 1960s. Um, concerning when all murders a... took place. <laughs> I know, apparently, according to our fucking podcast. Um, so it concerned a school child. She was called Mary Bell. And we'll begin. Okay. Uh, everyone's sitting comfortably. I've got my drink in hand. <laughs> um, I sang that. I know. Well, I hope everyone else is drinking with us, otherwise this podcast is I, not going to be good. If you're at work or on a run, press pause. Yeah. Come back later. Where to begin? Mary was born... Yeah. Well, I was literally about to begin, but Newcastle-ish. Mary was born and raised in Scotswood, which is in the sort of western area of Newcastle. So it's not even in Newcastle. Well, it is. It's a western part of it. You know, there's western parts of Manchester as well. No, we don't have a west. It was during the... (laughs) It was during the 1960s, anyway. Um, So at that time... uh, you know, it had changed little f- since World War Two. It was considered as a slum area. Now, please don't get offended if you're from there. It's lovely now. But at <laughs> the time, in 1960, it was considered as a sort of slummer area. Um, in this area, domestic abuse was common and prostitution was rife. Yay. That was unnecessary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know you were trying to fill the silence, but... <laughs> uh, so... As I said, prostitution was rife. Now, Mary Bell's own mother, Mary Bell is the killer we'll be talking about today, her own mother, Betty, was a prostitute and she would leave Mary alone and unsupervised for hours, even days at a time, as she travelled for work. You know, work being... Who travels in that line of work? I mean, she would go to Glasgow and everything for it. That's why she'd leave Mary alone for days. I'm sorry, if you are a sex worker and you have to travel for work... I feel like you're not good at your job. Well, I can only imagine she was in high demand. Well, surely they would come to her then. Well, I don't know. Why are you fucking asking? Sorry. Uh, So, anyway, (laughs) without the trip advisor input from Katie, uh, Betty was not a nurturing mother, obviously, because she was barely there. Um, And therefore, there are accounts of her... Like, not therefore. And there are also accounts of her having tried to murder Mary on more than one occasion. Oh, Okay. However, the primary of these occasions um, is supposed to have been a fall from the window that Mary experienced early in life, which is said to have left her with uh, damage to the brain, which had an effect on her decision making. It's like affected the lobe that has effects on decision making and also like impulsive behaviours. Um, so Bay, you know, the prostitute ma'am. Uh, she also, and this is not to be taken lightheartedly in any way. Because she says because is... she knows Katie's inappropriate. No, but this is fucking disgusting. So Betty cruelly involved her daughter in her prostitution. Oh. Um, so Mary herself said that her mother involved her from the age of four years old. Jesus now, Christ. I know. And Betty was not just your regular prostitute who 
for a, you know a shag like anal was not as far as she'd as she'd go put it that way uh-huh. bondage type shit she's involving her daughter in that from the age of four jesus christ i know i would also like to state at this point mary could also gain no nurture from her father billy bell who was <laughs> yes that was his name billy bell okay let's just get it all out now i mean who named him <laughs> Probably another non-nurturing dad. Um, <laughs> Billy Bell. So, Billy Bell. What is his fucking sister called? Like, Bonnie Bell? <laughs> oh. oh, and she was Betty Bell. Yeah, she was. Oh. Well, she was Betty... She was Betty whatever the fuck... Whoever was shagging her was called. <laughs> um, her dad, um, he, he was a criminal. Um, and he was, he was in jail a lot. Um, it's also not known for sure that Billy was actually her dad because obviously her mum was a prostitute. This was in the 1960s. Contraception was not widely available. Mary was known as being very aggressive uh, by the other children that she went to school with. Unsurprisingly. I know, because that was all she'd grown up with. Like I say, it wasn't normal prostitution that she was involved with from a young age. And even that would be scarring, but it's aggressive prostitution, like whipping and beating and everything it's just something you grow up with like if you grow up with that on the norm then it's gonna fuck with you yeah um so there were instances where mary would throttle other children in the playground and i'm just gonna say here that teachers did notice mary's issues but they did nothing about it so which tragically allowed them to continue and develop like I get worse. You that. you allowed that to happen at, at that time. You're an adult. You should have been picking up on that. Um, because many of her peers were frightened of Mary, they would try and keep out of her way. But there was one girl, Norma Bell, who lived next door to Mary, who Same was her friend. I know. No relation, though. Hmm. Absolutely no relation. I, I mean, it's, to be not, fair, uncommon, it's not, but, not uncommon. Yeah, but nonetheless. But she lived next door to Mary. Now, Norma was two years older than Mary, but she was the submissive one of the pair. Uh-huh. Even though she was two years older, Mary was a lot more intelligent. Um, and Norma would basically do whatever Mary told her to. Um, before Mary and her friend Norma began killing, there had been multiple reports to the police of two girls beating and choking younger children. But again, nothing was done about it. The first murder that Mary committed came not long after reports of uh, brutality with younger children. The victim uh, was four-year-old Martin Brown. Martin had been playing outside with his friends in the derelict buildings of the neighbourhood when he bumped into Mary. She strangled Martin whilst they were in this derelict house and he left his bo- and left his body to be found later. So two days after she committed this murder, she broke into a school and left notes saying, I kill so I may come back, always the mark of a true psychopath, (laughs) and we did murder Martin Brown. Now, Norma was not involved with the murder of Martin Brown, so it's unclear as to why it said we did murder Martin Brown when it was just Mary, Mm -hmm. but there's no rhyme or reason for that, there's no explanation for it. Um, Other than that she's fucked in the head. Yeah, otherwise she's probably talking about her two bloody personalities. <laughs> so just before Martin was buried, Mary and Norma went to his mum's house uh-huh. and asked to see him. Martin's mother explained that he was dead and so Mary would not be able to see him. Chillingly, Mary responded, Oh, I know he's dead, I just want to see him in his coffin. Oh, yeah. she sounds lovely. Eleven. She was eleven. Jesus Christ, man. Like, that's that's another thing I should say. Mary 
Mary Bell is a child killer. Can you actually? Like, she is imagine, 11 years old. Can you imagine an 11 year old saying that? Oh. That's sick. So, well, Martin Brown's mother just slammed the door in her face and went absolutely catatonic. She was just crying her eyes out. I remember this Deadly Woman episode. Um, Every story you yeah. fucking tell, I'm like, I remember the Deadly Woman episode. <laughs> we love Deadly Women. I don't know if we've mentioned that in any of our episodes. <laughs> Every single one. Primarily the first one, don't think it came up. <laughs> um, but, so even with this suspicious behaviour, no one suspected Mary could be behind the death, which left her free to kill again, unfortunately. Um, a second victim was three-year-old Brian Howe, whom she also strangled to death. This time it was on Wasteland in the same area. There were differences between this murder and that of Martin Brown. The first one being that she involved Norma with this one. The two girls committed the murder together. So it wasn't just Mary on her own. Mm -hmm. Norma was there as well. Um, So as well as strangulation, the girls had also mutilated his body. They carved an M and an N into his body. Jesus. I know. And they also... I carving. I know. Why? There's no need. It's so brutal, especially when you're 11 years old. I I keep forgetting. In my head, it's like a 30-odd-year-old woman. No, she's a child doing this. But... Given the life she had, like Aye, she's, she's been matured. exposed to this in a very, very vivid way. Aye. Um, again, you know, not supporting this in any way. Aye, but you can see where but it's, it's come more, from. Yeah, it's there's a there's a visible line as to where she could have come from from there. Absolutely. Um, and they also mutilated his genitalia. Three year old. So you can imagine why Mary's doing it if she's bloody getting. Right, well, she's been abused her entire life. Uh, exactly. Or like Again, we're not justifying her we're actions. We're not. We are not justifying actions. We, we can see where it's come from. Mm-hmm. Bad parenting. Horrifically exactly. bad parenting. Yeah. Not even parent. You couldn't call it parenting. No, you couldn't just, call it a childhood. It's just abuse. Exactly. It was actually this murder that made the police realise that it was a child murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, because the thing that killed him was the strangulation. But because it was so soft they've realised that it couldn't be an adult who would have applied proper pressure. That's intriguing, really, isn't it? Because mm. you'd think it would have to be a, yeah. a hard yank. But what her, what her um, like modus operandi was, mm. was that she would tell the boys that they had a sore throat and she would make it better. So she would like massage their throat and then she her grip would start to tighten until she had eventually suffocated them. Jesus! So, once they'd realised it was a child murderer, Uh due to Mary's prior behaviour, she became a suspect fairly rapidly, Mm -hmm. without surprise, because she's been going around bloody choking people in the schoolyard and all of that sort of stuff, and she's obviously not a normal kid, turning up at people's houses being like, oh, I just want to see him in his coffin. I just want to see the body. Yeah, (laughs) lush. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So, the police's suspicions were confirmed when a witness to Brian Howe's murder, a boy of nine with the mental capacity of a younger child, came forward, who'd seen the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Under question, it became apparent that Mary had psychopathic tendencies. Although she denied the murders to the police, they found the notes that Mary had written with Norma after Martin Brown's death in the school that they'd broken into. Mm -hmm. So, they charged her. Um, In court, she blamed everything on Norma, just as Norma blamed everything on her. 
the court didn't believe Mary. Norma was acquitted hmm. on all charges, How? so they must have believed her. Um, I don't know, my research didn't go that far. <laughs> Shoddy research. <laughs> to be fair, there's not a lot said about Norma apart from this, but Mary was found guilty of manslaughter due to her diminished responsibility for being 11 years old, mm-hmm. and she was imprisoned in various secure units for 12 years. At the age of 23, she was released from prison and given anonymity. Mm-hmm. Mm. In 1984, four years after her release, Mary gave birth to her daughter. And in 2009, she became a grandmother. All have been granted lifelong anonymity. So they're just out in the world? Yep. They're all out in the world. This is America, right? No. England. Newcastle. Oh, shit, of course it was. Newcastle. Hometown. Fuck me. You could have met them. Well, potentially, but I don't think so. I don't think they moved her back into Newcastle where everyone knew her. I could have met them. You could have met them. Could be me Anna. Could be in Manchester. Could be your Nana. Your (laughs) mum could be Ah. Mary Bell's daughter. Ah. You could be that granddaughter. Ah. Except you were born in 2009. (laughs) Oh, no. No, it's not me. So you're fine. Too old. <laughs> the only time you'll hear me say that. <laughs> That's I. I hate that. I hate uh, horrifying. I mean, imagine. I think we covered this when we were doing James Boulder, didn't we? Like, yeah. Imagine horrific. You could. Oh, fucks with me so bad. Like, but also, like, do you know what I mean? At the end of the day, she was eleven when she done that. She deserves a second chance. Maybe she's never re. She's never is, committed another offense. Can we just say this is the only time you'll ever hear Amy not saying you're a fucking about the murderer <laughs> but I know she had a she's, shy, it's like Eileen all over again shy, uh-huh. shy start in life absolutely, absolutely shit shy. she gets and into prison reforms she, she's a product of her upbringing well and mm-hmm. truly not to say that what she's doing is right but you can see how it happens but as a child as uh, well that's the thing you, you can just see how like you could go down any path but it's just <laughs> fucked hope you're not Mary Bell listening to this <laughs> how old would she be now <laughs> God, well, born in the 60s, so... Well, my mum was born in the 60s, so she's be about that. definitely alive. <laughs> unless she died of something. No, no, she's still alive, otherwise it would have been in there. That's... I would have covered her oh, death. We wouldn't know because she's living an anonymous life. No, nah, but she keeps getting found out. It's very much like... She? It's very much the same as James Bulger. She's been found out twice. Wow. So they have to keep granting her anonymity and that's... hiding her off somewhere else. That's wild. I didn't... Well, I knew... I knew that it was on Deadly Women from that one point of you saying she wanted to see the body because mm-hmm. I remember that on Deadly Women. But other than that, like, I didn't remember that story at all. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely fucking wild. Okay, right. So I'm from Manchester. I'm going to tell you a story from Manchester. Mine is very recent. It's um, about three and a half years ago, January 2016. Um, basically where I got my information from for my research here is I watched a documentary, it's a four part documentary called Detectives Murder on the Streets, it's uh, made by the BBC, so I watched that earlier today to refresh myself and actually learn a couple of new things about the whole story. So um, initially, the way that I'm going to go through it the way the documentary goes through it in their order um, and also add a bit in because they skipped a huge part of the story but I'll mention that later. Um, <laughs> So, first of all, this is the murder of Daniel Smith. He was 23 when he was murdered. He was living on the streets since age 16. It starts off um, with a phone call to the police um, saying that there's a fire on Key Street in Manchester City Centre. Um, the person who 
reports the call or who makes the call. Yeah. Um, he says... reports the fire, makes the call. Yes, yeah. he reports the fire. He says that he can see a... Or he invest, He goes to investigate and he says that there's a body burning in a tent in a homeless camp in the city centre in the early hours of the 20th of January. So the murder took place on the 19th, but this is called in on the 20th. And this is all, by the way, and I'm quite impressed, dealt with within a week. Wow. Yeah, really yeah, quite impressive. Well, That's the quickest it's been dealt with the, so far in our, uh, uh, throughout our podcast, I, anyway. Our whole four episodes. Yeah. <laughs> so... When they find the body of Daniel Smith, his entire body is burnt except for the right hand. And this actually... Fingerprints. Fingerprints. Yeah, that comes up. That's how they identify him later. Is they, that's the only way they can find out who he actually is. But one thing, and I, I had to write this in, is the deputy on the detective working on the case, in the documentary she goes, she's talking to someone on like her phone or what have you, and she's like, something's just not right about this. Well, no fucking shit. <laughs> You've got a dead homeless man set on fire in a camp. Yeah. It's probably petrol exhaust fumes coming out of it. Like. Yeah, it sounds legit, that, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, when the, in the documentary, they're, like, discussing the autopsy report, and what they find the what's happened to him is the severe burning primarily on the left side of his body, the separation to the front of his skull... There's bruises on his throat that indicate that he's been had his throat stamped on. His windpipe has been crushed and his jaw has been broken. Um, there is no soot in his mouth or his airways, indicating that he died before the fire was set. Um, at I bet the, he wasn't in the fetal position either. No, he was not in the fetal no. position at all. It's another way to tell if somebody's already dead is before there? the fire. I didn't know that. Yeah, because naturally you go to the fetal position. Do if you? You're in, if you're caught in a fire... And you don't think there's a way out, you'll naturally curl up into the fetal position. I did not know that at all. Mm. I, I like that fun fact. I hope we have another let's have a fire episode. Yeah. So at the crime scene they found a yellow baseball bat with blood and also a broken broom handle with blood all over it. Both of the blood uh, the blood on both weapons belonged to Daniel Smith. Yeah. None of Daniel Smith's personal items were found at the scene. So, just so you know, Daniel was no longer in touch with the family and it is later explored in the documentary that he actually, he used to shoplift as a teenager, he got involved in drugs, but he got, the reason Daniel Smith, the victim, was kicked out by his mum um, and his grandma in the end is because he actually stole money from his gr- grandma's bank mm. account. He left her with only £30 in her bank account and she's retired and like, you know. Yeah, that's a lot. He had friends in and around Manchester and the police do go and speak to these friends. Um, they, they speak to friends and they speak to home, other homeless people in the area and there's also a block of flats that overlooks the um, basically where he was killed I don't think I mentioned this actually so there's various bridges and what have you in Manchester and they've all got these huge arches and this homeless camp was within one of these arches mm-hmm. it was an old abandoned builder's yard I think and there's a block of flats that overlooked this so they interviewed everyone in there but between talking to his friends and talking to other homeless people and talking to people in these flats no evidence at all came up. Wow. After I think it's like a day or two later. Yeah. Um, a charity worker provides an audio tape to the police, and in this audio tape, there's a guy called Ryan McPhee. He's also a homeless man, and I will come to him at the end because he is an interesting character. But <laughs> so um, put a note in it. Uh. Yeah, put a pin in him. <laughs> um. Anyway, Ryan McPhee is talking to this charity worker. And he's basically talking to him about what's going on. And in the tape, Ryan is clearly petrified. Disturbed. Yeah, he's absolutely terrified. Um, he's worried, for one, that he's going to go to prison. 
and the charity worker throughout the tape tells him you're not going to go to you haven't done anything wrong you're not going to go to prison um but he's he's just terrified scary. i mean he's involved with scary people in this world and once you've watched that happen do you know what i mean I, it's fucking scarring um so in the tape ryan kind of describes the events of the night so he talks about the he sorry he wasn't actually there for the attack or for the burning at mm-hmm. all but he came in just after the attack he came into the camp so he knocked on the door and he was invited in and there was immediately like a tense atmosphere in the camp um and he came in and he saw daniel covered in blood um he was immediately scared he could feel the tension in the room and he he said to the other people the other homeless people there that they need to call an ambulance but then mcphee left very quickly himself um and at the end of the tape um mcphee sounds completely terrified like i've said um and the charity worker just keeps saying like you're not going to get in trouble you haven't done anything here but you do need to comply with the police yeah you need to talk to them um, and he, he advises them you should go to the police but he he doesn't go to the police um, but once the police hear the tape, because the charity worker sent it to them, because they don't have any information, they can't find... they found weapons, but they can't link it to anyone. Mm-hmm. They're still waiting for forensics to come back. There's no witnesses. There's nothing. So they go and find McPhee. So they arrest him mm-hmm. in order to question him, and they find McPhee in his parents' house and take him in. Yeah. So in the interview tapes, and these are quite interesting, to be honest, is this documentary is fantastic because you, you get the interviews with McPhee, you get the interviews with the suspects like it's it's really good documentary um anyway throughout the interview mcphee is clearly distressed but he's quite like he wants to take part and he clearly wants to take part in the interviews and like mm-hmm. there's clearly he he wants justice he's yeah he's like wanting to you know sort of not be a party to it kind of thing, absolutely almost. like he he doesn't want to get done for anything and i genuinely believe he's had nothing to do with it yeah um and the, he wouldn't come forward if you had no do you know what I mean? well he didn't come forward he was like the charity worker put him forward but yeah not... but he went forward to the charity worker I... and he must have known let's exactly honest, like would go to the police because like they always tell you you know i have to tell you mm-hmm. if you if it's a danger to you know you or someone else then i have to report to the police so he knew where it was going to get back to absolutely so McPhee, in his interview, he describes what went on in the arches. So basically, he went to the arches looking for spice, which is a synthetic um, marijuana. Yeah. It's, well, isn't it like a legal high? It is a legal high. Yeah. Uh, it shouldn't be. No. Um, so it does worse <laughs> than weed, so... It definitely in this fucking story it does. <laughs> so he went to the door of the camp and he knocked and he immediately noticed the tense atmosphere in the camp when he got there. So in the in the tape he describes some of the individuals who are at the camp. One person in particular who he describes is Luke Benson. McPhee describes him as a mad kid and he, that says he says that he always carries knives with him and he says he's a bit of a fruit loop. Well this is uh, hitting <laughs> some hitting some targets isn't it? Mm-hmm. He said most people were scared of Luke Benson as he always carried a truncheon type weapon um and he said that it was a yellow piece of wood which is like the yellow um what's it called baseball bat oh yeah so the police quickly realize that this is someone of interest yeah this is the this is what the blood was found on this is someone who we want to find so also during the interview mcphee gets down on the floor and like gets in the position that he saw daniel in 
Mm, Which is, yeah. He's really viewed it all, hasn't he? Absolutely. Like, he says he came in after the attack, so he's just seen him lying on the floor. And he said, I can see his nose was completely bust, and he was uh, lying against a pallet on the floor. And he said to everyone, we need to call an ambulance. And then he just quickly left because he was scared. And then at this point, the police conclude the interview, and they say that basically they've got enough evidence, and they need to give him a break because Brian is clearly just very distressed. Police eventually find, within a matter of hours, I believe, Mm -hmm. they find Luke Benson in Fallowfields, which is a popular student area in Manchester. Mm -hmm. Um, He immediately denies everything, and he's just like, he claims that he's upset about the death of his friend. He's not going to admit, is he? No, absolutely not. And drawing the police... That was my baseball bat. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Shit, I was just about to Um, go down to the Yankees. Should have mentioned it soon, I thought. (laughs) Uh, but I, during the police interviews, he just says no comment throughout, which I'm sorry, that makes you guilty. Yeah. Meanwhile, they, they also pull in other witnesses who McPhee mentioned, but everyone just follows the same suit as Luke Benson and they all just say no comment. The police start tracking down CCTV footage from the day that Daniel Smith was murdered. They were able to follow Benson around Manchester on the day of the murder. Mm-hmm. Um, in, and in hopes of identifying other accomplices yeah. and witnesses who might have been there at the time. And also um, just seeing his movements, probably. Absolutely. But one of the people that they managed to see is a guy called Adam Acton, who's with right. Luke all day long. So they follow the CCTV footage around, but also after the event, so they kind of, obviously, when people find, when police find the body, they can kind of pinpoint when somebody died. So this next footage I'm about to describe pinpoints after they know that, that he must have died, so timing-wise. So there's further CCTV footage of that night, after the murder, and Acton and an unknown girl, who we later find out is somebody called Amanda Briggs, right. um, can be seen in a shop buying milk, a pot noodle, a lighter, and lighter fluid. Or just a pot noodle and some milk for, you know... I, I feel like that was them trying to be like, oh, we're not suspicious yeah. at all. Um, it's like when you go and buy a birthday cake in Tesco's, even though it's not your birthday, so you're I, like, I'll buy some candles <laughs> and it'll sus- make it look I, like I'm buying it for a mate. I'm not sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not just eating a birthday cake because I myself, feel like it. Not at all. Um, anyway, so the police find Acton and Amanda Briggs um, hiding in Acton's mum's house in the mm-hmm. attic, which is suspicious immediately. Yeah. Um, so both... So, mum, don't tell them we're here. <laughs> shh, shh, don't tell. It's the fucking police. I'm going to tell them you're here. <laughs> So um, Acton Briggs are, uh, they're more compliant than Benson when it comes to the police interviews, mm-hmm. particularly Amanda Briggs. So they're interviewed at the same time, but in separate rooms, obviously. Mm-hmm. And basically Amanda's the first one to reveal what happened that night. So basically Daniel Smith, the, the guy who was murdered, he woke up in the middle of the night and he, I mean, they're in a dark homeless camp and he just gets up and he goes to have a pee and he accidentally pees on somebody else's bedding. Like, yeah. Um, now, Benson and Daniel have actually had a fight during the day about, I don't know, whatever. Um, but this pisses Benson off because this pi- it wasn't even on Benson's bed, but it pisses Benson off. So he begins beating him up. Abuse actually went on for a matter of hours wow. and um, just beating him up, hitting him, kicking him, being terrible. Mm-hmm. But also what struck me is um, Amanda says that her boyfriend... Sorry, she's going out with Adam Acton. Acton. And she says that um, he came and had a spliff with her. Mm-hmm. during the attack oh, and then just went back to it I, I and went back to it but I mean, initially she was protecting him and saying she had nothing to he had nothing to do with it but the police kind of questioned that and then she kind of gave it in g- gave him in because she was looking out for herself so she admits that he is involved in the attack 
the detectives tell Acton, like, Amanda's saying this about you and she's saying that you're involved and he's all defensive, of course, and so mm-hmm. I've got nothing to do with it, I can't speak for her, I don't know why she's saying that. Back at Amanda Briggs's interview, she says that during the beating, Benson and Acton were questioning Daniel and trying to get his password for his tablet and his uh, mobile phone, and then she reveals that actually, she says that one of them, Benson or Acton, put the mobile phone in her handbag and then she told the police that the handbag is in Acton's mum's house. Uh, mm. Sorry, the phone. Um, and that they've smashed it up, but it's it's in the house. And the police obviously go and retrieve it. Now, the police don't explore what happened after the attack. At this point, like, Daniel's essentially dead. Yeah. Um, now, if you go on the Manchester Evening News, this is where I got the rest of the information from about what happened after the attack. Basically, they'd beat Daniel half to death. And then they, he, now he wasn't quite dead. Amanda, Acton and Benson split up. They went to the shop. They went to go and get McDonald's. They went to get some food, what have you. Just go you back know, anyway. as you do Kay. once you've savagely beaten someone to death. Casual as anything. They came back and he was still alive. Oh, and they went to get more drugs, obviously. Yeah. Um, he, and they, basically, he'd, sorry, he died at this point uh, while they were out. And they were like, right. And his injuries. Just, aye. Yeah. They were just like, what the fuck do we do now? So that's when they set the fire to Daniel's body, which is what alerted the police. The police to it. Uh-huh. And they quickly fled the scene and left. Now, back to the documentary. On the fifth day of the investigation, when they're looking around the camp, they actually find a hammer hidden inside a sleeping bag at the camp. Now, DNA testing comes back quite quickly after this, and DNA belonging to Benson um, comes back on the broom handle. So at this point, they're able to charge him with the murder obviously. They also, at this point, charge Acton with murder, Mm -hmm. uh, based off of the reports from Amanda Briggs. And Briggs is charged with preventing the course of justice. Yeah. Now, DNA... Perverting the course of justice. Perverting the court of justice, yes. It's alright. I've got got your back on. (laughs) You follow me. (laughs) Remember we found the hammer? We've just... Now, we found this five days later. Mm -hmm. But when DNA comes back on the hammer, it's actually linked to somebody called Edward Waters, who hasn't been mentioned yet. So they go and find him. He's actually hiding out in Wales and um, he says he's not been to the camp since Christmas Eve and this is really quickly proved that he wasn't there and he said the only reason his DNA was there because he was at the camp weeks ago mm-hmm. and he was putting something up on a wall. He touched the hammer and that's why his DNA evidence is there. So he was quickly let go. But so I he just, was just like kicking about in Wales. Just I Just like, his shit, life. why am I now involved yeah. in a murder investigation? <laughs> what the fuck is this? Anyway, everyone's now been charged who's been in, believed to be involved in the case. Um... The jury deliberated for 18 hours. That's not long at all. See, I find that quite... What I find actually quite interesting is um, the findings were unanimous for Acton, mm-hmm. even though the report... Fingerprints and everything. Had, there was no physical evidence actually for Acton. That was all Yeah, the but that's what I mean. It was all about uh, Benson. Aye. So even though the proof was against Benson, they Ab- found Acton unanimously guilty. Absolutely. But they did have a majority for Benson. Mm-hmm. So Acton was sentenced to 22 years in prison and Benson got 21. So there's not much but, difference. Yeah, not but at huge. the same time, I feel like it should be the other, the way, other around. way around. And then uh, Briggs was sentenced to 18 months for perverting the course of justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and now here's just a wee fun fact. So I mentioned Ryan McPhee at the start. Mm-hmm. So I Googled him. So small detour, basically. So I quite liked Ryan mm-hmm. in the story. He, you know, he provided the first... I wouldn't say liked. But I'm, I'm, I'm ambivalent towards him because he, he did what he should have done. But he, he led them to the, you know, yeah. he led the police. He, I, you know, I didn't have negative thoughts about him. And there's, um, there's some articles 
throughout various, like, you know, the Sun and the Manchester Evening News and what have you. And they report that in 2015, prior to the murder of Daniel Smith, McPhee is praised for organising and creating a homeless camp in Manchester called The Ark. Wonderful. Um, in, That's good. In late 2016, so this is a few months after the murder, um, he actually recorded... I thought the murder was in 2017. Did I fuck up my dates? Okay, this is before the murder. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he... He's praised, he defends an Arabic woman on a bus when um, someone's being racist oh, yeah. towards her. We've all seen those kind of videos. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, there's another article about him there. Unfortunately. But then, Amy, mm-hmm. in 2018... So after the murder. After the murder. Less than a year ago, actually. Mm-hmm. There are numerous articles about him assaulting a man with a machete in an unprovoked attack and slicing the man's hand in half. I'm just saying, I said I didn't feel keen on him, so... I was shook. I was absolutely fucking shook. Um, he's now been sentenced to 16 years in prison, and I ended it with, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, and I know that had nothing to do with the murder, but I just had to include that, because he just, he set up a homeless camp, and he defends a, an Arabic woman, and then he... Slices shot- off a man's hand with a machete. Uh-huh, as you do. Anyway, we weren't talking about him. That's Manchester. Um, <laughs> Manchester's a lovely place to visit. I know. I mean, you've got child killers in Newcastle, homeless killers in Manchester. We also have child killers in Manchester. Come back in a few weeks for that one. Yeah, Mills but we're murderers. not going to... We're not. No, don't give it away. Spoilers, sorry. Um, actually, speaking of, what are we talking about next time, Amy? So, next week... Oh, let me just consult the old diary here. Amy's just plucking her book off the table. Yeah, I don't have it to hand. Let's have a look. So, next week, we will be talking about couples who kill. Oh, perfect. So, and mass murderers. So, stay tuned for those two. Uh-huh. Right, we'll see you next time, guys. Thank you for staying tuned. If you episodes. have done. Also, please follow our podcasts. You know, try your best. I know sometimes you really got to stick in with it, but love you. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye.